You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. I'd like everybody to close their eyes. I'm going to read the text that we're going to be preaching from right now. But I want you to find yourself in this story. It's one of the most rich stories in the Bible. I love when it comes around in the lectionary. But I want you to find yourself in the story. The minute you hear a name, the minute you hear a verse, I want something to germinate in you, and I want that to be the thing that you think about as you hear this message preached today. It's one of those messages that is going to be impossible to exhaust what needs to be said. And so as I read this story, I I want something supernatural to happen that while I'm reading the gospel of Jesus Christ, you hear your name said by the Holy Spirit at some point in the reading, and then I want you to focus on that while we're preaching today. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, Jairus fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may may be made well and live. And he went with him. He's going with you today. Whatever your request is, whatever your need is, his answer to you is yes, he's going with you. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, the same amount of years as the girl's age, and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Sometimes failed cures feel worse than the sickness itself. She had heard the reports about Jesus And came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. If you feel that you're faceless this morning, he won't leave until he turns and sees your face in the crowd. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing, or rather in another translation, but entirely ignoring what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. 
They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the girl's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And Jesus strictly charged them that no one should know of this and told them to give her something to eat. Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you would make preaching easy and that you would make hearing your word a delight to the soul. I pray for those who have found themselves in the story today that they would sense you stopping in the crowd, turning, seeing, declaring, and being with them. And I pray that what we have imparted to us today would be the very thing we offer the world around us. In your name we pray, and everybody said, amen. You may be seated this morning. Man, oh man, it feels good to be in God's house, amen? I'd like to thank JP for filling in today. You look good, you play good, you're the man. JP's wife, Diane, is here with her two children, and we're just happy to have them in town. It is so nice when you can call on some friends. We got Pastor Mark here and Lena and Bryn. It's kind of like this hybrid friends and family reunion. It feels so good to have all of this happening in the room. It's been a long time, everybody. Like, this feels good to have this kind of thing happening. Last week, we talked about Jesus going to the other side to heal a man who was oppressed by demonic forces. And we know that on the way to that healing, Jesus and the disciples encountered a storm. And we talked about how God brings us into storms, not so much that we can get through them, but so that we can have a better understanding of what he's bringing us to. So the storm is not the thing that we just want to have end. But the storm is teaching us about the DNA of our next season in life. Because they needed, in this case, they needed to get a little disoriented as to who God was. Remember in the boat, when the storm ends, they say, who is this that wind and wave obey him? And there's something healthy about saying, who is this God that I serve? Because we tend to fail the most when we define too clearly who God is and then assume he wouldn't do something because we know him so well. Peter would be a great example of this. You are the son of God. All right, so come with me to Jerusalem, Peter, so I can die. Absolutely not. You're the son of God. The son of God doesn't die. And right there, Jesus realizes Peter thinks he knows me a little too well. Sometimes we need to get a little disoriented because we wouldn't follow God where he's going. And in this case, like we said last week, he was going to the other side of the tracks. He was going to Gentile country, Samaritan country, country where people in church say, Lord, send blessings, but they themselves would never actually want to go. From a distance, peace be with you, but don't put me in a boat and take me there. And sometimes we'll kid ourselves into thinking God really doesn't want me to go there. And God is saying, ah, you think you know me. 
but I really do want you to go there. And the text last week, and this is the last review we'll do, and we'll get into this text, it says this, when Jesus got into a boat, a great windstorm arose. Then there is the entire thing that happens with the demoniac. And just now in this text, Jesus gets to the other side and it says this, and a great crowd gathered around him. And when you read, like we said last week, read every single word in the text, especially when you're reading the Gospels, because every word weighs 10,000 pounds. A great windstorm arose, and then when he gets back, a great crowd followed him. So something in that phraseology should tell you Jesus is encountering a different kind of storm. And I don't know about you, and it's probably nobody in this room, but how many know that people could be a worse kind of storm than an actual tornado itself? Anybody got a coworker? Anybody got a child? Jen's over here making it sound all romantic when kids wake up in the middle of the night. I realize what a failure of a parent I am. I'm like, shut up! It was just a dream. God's like, I can't. I can't do this. There are times where people, especially groupthink. Anybody ever been on social media? Groupthink produces itself, and it gets completely out of control, just to say the least. Amen? So Jesus is filled with this crowd, and it's the same phrase, a great storm arose, and then when he gets back to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him. The same way the wind gathered around the boat, a great crowd has now gathered around Christ. And to the reader, we're supposed to say, he's in a storm. But what kind of storm? Crowds in the Bible, especially in the gospel, are very, very interesting phenomenon. How many remember the story of the man whose friends had to tunnel through the roof to get the paralyzed man in to see Jesus? They actually broke in to quite possibly Jesus's or Peter's actual house and dropped somebody down who needed to be with Jesus. How many here would agree it is good to have that kind of faith where you will press your way through, tunnel through something? Can I get a witness from somebody? Tunnel through, do something crazy to get to Jesus? But how many know it's a shame that we have to? Because when you read that story, it was the religious leaders who were in the house. It was a crowd that was keeping a person who needed to be part of that crowd from being part of that crowd. So it's great that they tunnel through the roof. But it's a shame that there was a system in place where they had to do something like that. The demoniac from last week. Notice that there's a crowd on the side of the sea where all the Jewish people are and the Gentiles are not. But when Jesus was on the other side, it was just Jesus and his disciples. Nobody went with him. So Jesus comes back to his hometown, and everyone's cheering him like, yeah, Jesus, you're back. We love you so much. Not one of you was with me over there. Don't tell me you love me on Sunday and not go to where people who don't look like you are that need you. We're not doing the world any favors when we hoot and holler in here, but we can't get around people who don't look like us. We all talk about convergence all the time. The way we worship is convergent. Listen, our social network should look convergent too. Jesus isn't impressed with all the fandom that he has on the other side. It's a storm. 
It's a storm. Why weren't you with me on the other side? You didn't go through a storm with us. You didn't stand in the tombs with me. You were all afraid that you were going to get unclean, that somebody would see you hanging out with the wrong person. You just assumed he's possessed because he did evil things. And you just write all this stuff off, and you're just waiting for me on the other side. I'm not impressed. Some people follow the event of Jesus. Other people follow the person of Jesus. The woman who's hemorrhaging. How many know it's great? How many have heard many sermons about how we need to press through a crowd? How you need to press through your circumstance? How you need to press through your own emotions? How you need to press through your previous traumas? How you need to press through your experiences? How you need to press through the things that you've done wrong? You need to press through the things that other people have done wrong on you. That's good. It's good that she pressed through. Just because something bad has happened to me doesn't mean that God hasn't given me the response ability to still press. But why is it that the crowd parts like the Red Sea for Jarius and doesn't even see the woman? Jarius can walk right up to Jesus face to face. Hey, yeah, uh, I know, Jesus the microphone, I know that our whole synagogue has basically been saying we want to kill you but I kind of need something right now. <laughs> this is embarrassing. Also that I'm talking to a microphone, but you all get it. Can you come to my house? And Jesus is like, yep. And when I read it, I'm like, no, Jesus, why? Because the fact that you went means I'm going to have to do that now. This whole system, this synagogue system is just discrediting you left and right. False accusation or twisting true accusations on him. And Jesus just bounces right up and goes, I'm like, can we redact that? Is there like a group that you could call to get that verse out? I don't want to have to go. I want to be like Samson and seek vengeance on my enemies. I don't want to be like Jesus and seek healing for them. crowd just opens up for Jarius, and the woman has to press. Crowds are a storm for Jesus. But I'm going to say Matthew 14. Jesus sees crowds, and it says, and he had compassion on them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, Matthew 15, somewhere in there. It's the beginning of the story of the feeding of the 5,000. When Jesus sees large group, when, when Jesus sees the systems that unconsciously are just wreaking havoc on the world, he has compassion on it. And what does he do? He does every, every person up here preach half the sermon today. I'm just going to preach the second half. Jesus, like Doreen said, he stands in and draws closer to the crowd. He gets into the middle of the crowd. He allows the wind and the rain and the storm, just like he's on the boat, he allows the, the, the systems, the broken systems that oppress, that dehumanize, that pull us down, that don't want us to be healed. He gets them all around him because he's going to minister to the system that's undergirding that crowd. How does he minister to them? This is where I want everybody to lean in. Jesus wants you to know that your one little life is capable, like a mustard seed, of beginning to dismantle every system of oppression that exists in this world. And as soon as, we, as soon as we stop thinking that my one life isn't significant enough to do that, 
it might actually start to happen. And if it's not going to happen worldwide, it can happen beginning in this church. And then it can happen in your community of people that you live around, and maybe even the Hudson Valley. When we realize that what you're walking through, in the midst of a crowd, you just feel like a needle in a haystack. When you're just walking through life, your situation, your battles, the things you're facing, what happens in this text is this. God opens up two people to be honest. And because of their honesty, the whole crowd sees the character of a loving father. You see, if the disciples in the boat don't say, carest thou not that we're perishing, we might never hear Jesus say, you don't have to be afraid, peace be still. If Mary never says, how can these things be, we might never hear the angel say, for man it is impossible, with God all things are possible. If uh, Thomas never refuses to show up on Easter Sunday, we might not have Jesus showing up eight days later saying, see my hands. When we're honest, the world gets to see the character of God in a way that they wouldn't see it if we hold it in. So I want everybody to hear this. Evangelism is not convincing the world of their need of Christ. Evangelism is letting the world see our need of Christ and what God does about it. We've spent so much time trying to prove to people that they need Jesus when it says in Revelation that we have overcome the world by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our, by what Jesus has done and what he's done for me. That's what overcomes the world, the word of my testimony, not the apologetic and the convincing of how wrong JP is, which is easy to do. It's letting people see our need and how God enters it and sits in it and, and puts a face on it and says our name in it and heals it and, and on his way and it, with so much going on stops to see who touched him because it's not enough for Jesus to accomplish healing. Jesus is not out to accomplish healing. He's out to make sons and daughters. People will say things like, in this story, the woman never has a name. She does have a name in the story. Her name is Daughter. Her name is Daughter. And if Jesus was like us and just was flying down his to-do list, as soon as he felt that power and virtue had gone out from him, he immediately would have kept on going because he would have known, I accomplished, the outcome is now favorable, we can move on to the next thing. But Jesus says, healing isn't healing until they know who did it and I see their face. Salem, we got to slow down in our life. We move too fast. We move too fast. Like Jen said, it's not just about our kids falling back to sleep after they've had a nightmare. It's about them knowing that we heard and saw and comforted. Write that down for me, please, so I don't forget that. <laughs> Find yourself in this story. You might be the crowd. You might be the woman. You might be Jairus. You're the woman. The crowds approach Jesus in a way that doesn't get his attention. Two people approach him in a way that does. 
Here's the easy answer. The only way to approach God, Salem, everyone, this is not going to be mind-blowing, but it's almost, it's mind-blowing to our ego. The only way to approach God is the honest way. Look, Jarius comes from a position of privilege. He holds the cards. He's the ruler of the synagogue. He's only named Jarius once. For the rest of the text, he's called the ruler because they want you to know that it's not just this man named Jarius that humbles himself, but later on in the story, Jarius is going to do something that is mind-blowing, and they want you to know that it's not just him, the man. It's also the office he holds that is now submitting to Christ. A lot of people can sometimes humble their person, but oftentimes, and we see this with all of our political leaders, it's easy to humble the person. Sometimes it's hard to humble our actual position we hold in life. And this man does both. But what does he do? He goes boldly before the throne of grace. Jarius walks right up to Jesus in the midst of everybody who's now going to call him a hypocrite, who's going to discredit him. You know, no one's going to be there on Friday night when they have their service because Jarius was just amping the whole synagogue up because Jesus is our enemy. And now he's like locked arm in arms with him. I'm not listening. Jarius is risking all of this. He goes directly to Jesus, risks his reputation, risks his income, risks everything. Why? Because none of those Christian principles matter when one of your kids is sick. All the principles in the world flush when real life hits. When the storm rises, Titanic sinks, right? Doesn't matter. That's how we're told. Approach him that way. Then another person approaches Jesus. Doesn't want to see him face to face. Doesn't want to make a commotion. Kind of, some people can say presses through the crowd. Others have said in some commentaries, avoiding the crowd. It wasn't so much a pressing as much as it was a sidestepping and an avoiding and trying not to be seen in the crowd or by the crowd. And I just, I don't even want to touch his body. I just want to touch the hem of his garment. One person bold, risking it all. Another person comes to Jesus hiding. Salem, Jesus responds to both the same. Sometimes in your life, you can go to him the bold way. Sometimes in your life, you're going to have to crawl to him the hiding way. But as long as that's the way that you are, he responds to it. There is no right or wrong way to approach Christ. There's only the honest way. The crowds are not honest. These two are. The disciples are. Carest thou not that we're perishing? The demoniac from last week was not able to approach Jesus. So what does Jesus do to somebody who can't approach him? Goes to them. Want to know why? Because the 99 sheep are really zero until there's 100, and Jesus will go get the ones who couldn't go to him. This is what he does. If he's put it in you to be able to approach him, then you got to use that gift and approach him. If somebody can't approach him, then Jesus is going to approach them. And here's the reality. You might be the way that Jesus is going to approach the person who can't approach him. 
So we have to do what Jarius did. And this is very, very important. Jarius is the ruler of the synagogue. He's the one who has authority to call out anything that has to do with the Jewish purity codes. This man can say, you are not wearing that right. You are doing work on the Sabbath. You didn't wash your hands. You ate the wrong kind of food during the feast day. Jarius has the authority to do this. Jarius has probably done that to people the entire time, which is what enabled him to become a ruler of the synagogue because the synagogue promoted people who would gatekeep well all of their previous laws. Jarius' daughter is dying. Jesus says he'll go. Put yourself in his position. Moms and dads, put yourself in this position. Jesus says he'll go, and you know the clock is ticking. They start going. Jesus has people around him like crazy. And all of a sudden, Jarius is probably walking in front of Jesus, like pushing people out of the way. Let's get there. Let's get there. And all of a sudden, Jesus stops. And he says, somebody touch me. And the disciples say, everybody's touching you. And he said, no. I just felt power leave me. I know somebody just got healed. Pause. We get stressed when ministry in our life saps us of energy. But Jesus is revealing that when we feel our energy depleted because we're parenting or ministering or working hard, it's actually because healing took place somewhere else. Jesus reveals that the way of healing is to lose what you have. He ultimately will do this on the cross. On the cross, he will say, somebody touched me. I felt my whole life drain from me. This moment is one of the first prophecies in Mark's gospel of the cross where Jesus says, I know someone just got healed because something I had was lost and it went into them. That will ultimately be expressed on the cross when his whole life is lost so that it can go into us. Amen? So he reveals to his disciples, the workers of the ministry, that getting fatigued means you're doing something that's healing somebody else. But here's the thing. They didn't know who it was. And you're talking, this is for me first, then everybody else. You don't have to know who it was to know somebody got healed. We get excited when we can measure our own results, but in the kingdom, we have to know that if it sat me of energy, and I was following him, and I was doing what he told me to do, and it feels like this walk of discipling and ministry is costing me, it's costing you because somebody's getting healed. And one day, and this shouldn't be cheesy to us, one day that person will thank you. They will thank you. You will see them, and you will know, because they will be so restored they will be pushing through the crowd again, not to get healed, but to tell you, you healed me. JP, where was I? I forgot. Just kidding. Jarius is like, okay, who touched you? Can we go? And Jesus is like, no, 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 somebody got healed. And Jarius is like, great, let's go. There now is no more reason to say they got healed, Jesus. They definitely got healed. Good job, Jesus. That's amazing. You did it. Great. Let's go. Jesus is like, no, no, no. I want to see. I want to see who it was 
See, her honesty is opening up the life of God to this crowd, this system of oppression. Her honesty is opening up Jesus' life. The whole crowd is hearing this encounter and something absolutely amazing that's about to happen. The whole crowd is hearing this because somebody got honest. If we hide where we're weak, if we hide where we're suffering, if we hide our need, the world might never get to see the life of Christ open this way. All will be as part of the crowd. The way you stand out in the kingdom is not by doing amazing things. It's by being the first one to say, I have a need. I don't have it all together. I messed up with my kids yesterday. I'm not working as hard as I can. I'm struggling. I'm hurting. I'm sick, and it's getting discouraging. When we can start to say those things, the life of God opens up, not just for you, but for everyone around you who would never think of being that honest. Watch what Jesus does. He looks at her, and he says, first, it says, now, ladies, don't get mad at me here, okay? You promise? Okay? Promise me now. I need to hear a good majority of you say, okay. That's not enough. She told him the whole story. How many know women can chat? You you raised your hand like this just now. (laughs) Dude is sitting next to his wife. He's like, Pastor. She told him the whole story. And Jairus is like, car's on. You're the one who said we have to go. Why are you still? I see this happen out there every single day. Be like, hey, we got to go, we got to go. Okay, and then the person who said they got to go is still chatting. Husband's just looking confused. Car's turned on. Like, where do we go? What do we do with our bodies? Why does Jesus do that? Because there was something more wrong in this woman's life than her hemorrhaging. Notice it says she was healed, and then Jesus said, go and be healed of your disease. See, the first healing that she received wasn't the hemorrhaging. She thought, there's no way I can have a relationship with him. So I'm just going to touch his garments. That's the first thing that needed to be healed. Jesus said, if, if, if you walk away physically healed, but you don't know that I knew that it was you, you're going to be leaving with a sickness that's worse than the hemorrhaging. She needed to know that she could show up in Jesus' face the same way Jarius did. So Jesus stops everything, clock ticking on a 12-year-old girl's life. He stops to say, nothing, no ministry is more important to me than people. We'll stop the whole show. She needs to know, and somebody in this room, somebody watching from home, you need to know that you're not just a box that God checks off. He doesn't just want your life to get better. He wants you to know that he is the one who's making it better face-to-face, by name, in your life, intimately equated with your details. And please, 
when we leave here and we minister to the world around us, our husbands, our wives, our children, our coworkers, our deacon groups, everybody that we minister to, when we hang out with each other, never think that someone just feeling better about a circumstance is the end of ministry. Never think that somebody going from bad behavior to better behavior is the essence of ministry. The essence of ministry is the person knowing you're seen and you're known and you're heard and nothing you can do could ever make me not want to call you daughter. That's what Jesus wants. That's the healing that's going to last into eternity. Great. Jarius is still standing there. <laughs> this is a beautiful moment. It really is. JP's playing in the background. Notice what Jarius doesn't do. And maybe some of you saw this before. I did not. He doesn't say anything. Now, as an extrovert who's got a little bit of an obtrusive personality and says things without thinking most of the time, I'm saying I have needs. Don't look at me and judge me. I'm being honest. I can't believe that Jarius didn't say anything. Not even to somebody else. Like, have you ever had somebody who says, like, slaps you, but they couch it in a compliment to somebody else? Like, man, it's really good that Jesus is taking so much time here listening to this person. It's almost like Jesus loves her so much he forgot about my daughter. I mean, it's just crazy, right? Am I the only one? Is Jesus? I mean, it's so good that Jesus is taking so much time. He didn't even do that. Watch what would happen if he did. Jarius has the authority to tell this woman that she's unclean. He has the authority to do it. Do you believe me? He has the authority to do it. So watch. Let's say he gets impatient. You know what? You're unclean. You shouldn't be touching him anyway. But now what happens? If he calls her unclean, who else does he have to call unclean now? Jesus. But if he calls Jesus unclean, because you notice judgmental people always have to be consistent, and if you're judgmental and you're accusatory and you're cynical, eventually your consistency is actually going to wreak havoc on your own life. Lady, you're unclean. All right, but now be, be intellectually honest, Jairus. Now Jesus is unclean. Jesus, you're unclean. And Jesus is like, great, well, guess where I can't go now? To your house. So he's got to go home and say, honey, you're not going to get better today because daddy judged a woman. When we approach the world behavior first, relationship second, we will ruin all the relationships that we have in our life. My man said nothing. Do you know what Jairus' name means? It means the one who becomes enlightened. Becomes. He went to Jesus, maybe selfish. Rips Jesus apart all week long. Now he needs him. Goes to him and, and he's, he's got a little authority. Jesus, my daughter's sick. Please come. And Jesus starts going. And when Jairus sees Jesus start going, something happens to him. And he realizes, this man started going. He didn't call me out on one single thing. 
He didn't call me out on my hypocrisy. He didn't call me out on all the things that I've ever said and done about him to other people. I'm part of the reason why this mob around him is cynical. I'm part of the reason why this system is eventually going to kill him. I'm part of the reason why there's momentum building against him and hurting the people who need him. I'm part of all of that, and he didn't say anything to me. In that moment, Jarius becomes enlightened and realizes, I'm just going to be an image. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to expect him to be my image. I'm going to be his. If he stops, I'll stop. If he waits, I'll wait. If he's talking to her, I'll talk to her. And he waits and doesn't do anything. If he did, Jesus would never have been able to go to his house. Then another group comes, another crowd. And they say to Jarius, don't bother the teacher anymore, your daughter has died. Again, he doesn't say anything. Mary and Martha said something. If you would have gotten here sooner, my brother Lazarus would still be alive. Jarius doesn't say anything. He hears this bad report from the cynical, jeering mob. And what happens? Jesus looks at him, and it says, this is really interesting, and I don't want to get too deep into this, but this is interesting. It says in the ESV, and overhearing them, Jesus said to Jarius. In another translation, it says ignoring them. But that Greek word comes from a Hebrew word that is used only one time. And it's used for the word transgression. When Haman said, every time we go to worship, Mordecai refuses to worship. He transgresses the king's command. In other words, Jesus heard a gospel, and the gospel he heard was, don't bother the teacher. This is so key. Everybody say, don't bother. Don't bother the teacher. The girl is dead. And Jesus transgresses that gospel. He doesn't, he doesn't just ignore it. He doesn't just overhear it. He willingly disobeys that gospel. And here's the part he disobeys. Don't bother the teacher. There's been this battle between should Christians be walking in fear and shouldn't they be walking in fear. Not to distract, I don't want to get into all this kind of stuff, but there are some things that we should, like I kind of want Sophia to be afraid to run into the middle of the road without holding our hands, right? That's the kind of stuff that we should have, like we should have that healthy respect for things that can happen. If you see a, a tornado coming to your house, be afraid and go into a basement, Or don't be and be the guy that will trend forever who didn't. What does Jesus tell them that they shouldn't be afraid of? Go back to the boat. Carest thou not that we're perishing? He says, don't be afraid. Well, what are we supposed to just ignore storms? No, no, that's not what Jesus is saying, don't be afraid of. Jesus is saying, don't have the kind of fear that says, carest thou not. Don't ever think that when it gets bad in your life, and it will, that I'm not in it with you. That's what he said to them in the boat. He didn't want them to think, because in another story, when Jesus is walking on the water, they get afraid of Jesus on the water and say, it's a ghost. They're afraid of him, not the storm. 
And Jesus doesn't want us to be afraid that because something went wrong, that means that we have to cower thinking we've done something wrong or that God's not in it with us. He wants you to know, he, you know, there's going to be some hemorrhaging that doesn't dry up. There's going to be some storms he doesn't stop. There are going to be some 12-year-olds that don't get healed. And in this entire earthly life, he wants us to know when these things begin to take place, don't be afraid and thinking, I don't care and I'm not with you. Because Jesus can always say, because of what he will do one day, the child is only sleeping. Because no one has ever died to God, they've only died to us. But they're only ever sleeping to him. Because Jesus will do something in his world, that means he's always done it. So because he will raise them from the dead in his world, he already has raised them from the dead, which is why he says Lazarus is only sleeping, which is why he says this girl is only sleeping. Jarius doesn't say I'm afraid. But Jesus says to him, don't be afraid, because sometimes we refuse to confess our fear because we think it's wrong to be afraid. Here's the thing. There's only one way that God can heal fear. And when I tell you I am speaking from very, very deep experience here, there's only one way that God will heal fear. He won't make you the kind of person who can choose to not be afraid ahead of time. The way he will heal, heal your fear, your anxiety, is by speaking to it when it happens. When it happens, he will speak to it. Jesus doesn't calm storms that aren't storming. He calms storms. He doesn't calm the potential for them. He doesn't calm the possibility of them. He calms the storm when it's raging. We could walk around all day long. I'm going to choose to not be afraid. I'm going to choose to not be afraid. And what we're seeing with Jarius is Jarius is probably living that kind of life. You know what? I'm a ruler of the synagogue. They just told me my daughter died. I'm going to put up this front. And right away, Jesus says, don't be afraid. He's telling us, pull, get out of your body what is really happening in it. Don't pretend with Christ and don't pretend with the body of Christ. We don't ever need to pretend with each other. We need to be honest. What we, what God will heal are the things that are actually happening. So I'm going to get afraid in my life. And when that storm of fear rises, he will say, peace be still. And then there might be another time where that storm comes back again. Peace be still. He will heal the fear that is happening. So don't feel like you've gone wrong. I, I'm not going to admit, I'm not going to claim that. Like, disciples, you could claim that the storm's not happening, but guess what? Your boat's about to sink. JP, you want to? It seems like we say it so much, it doesn't need to continue to be said, but it's in one of the four Gospels, and whatever is in those four Gospels needs to be said perpetually forever. You are valuable enough for Jesus to stop and not just heal you, but make a relationship with you that you didn't think you could have with him. Nothing in your life needs to change for you to have a better relationship with him. 
having a better relationship with him is going to change things in your life. But the difference is enormous. He just wants to kneel down next to you and say, don't be afraid. You've been healed. And if it happens again, I'll be right here again. But these crowds that surround us every day, everywhere we go, they need to see us come to Christ bold, come to him weak, come to him confident, come to him afraid. Bail in water, saying things we shouldn't be saying, carest thou not that we're perishing? They need to see us do all of that because the more we try to act like we got it together, the less attractive we're going to be to the world around us. Because, spoiler alert, we don't have it together. I do, but nobody else really does. You could hear the maniacal laughing for the people who know me the most. Like, <laughs> he's so funny, he doesn't have it together. What's the last thing he says is give her something to eat. And it's the last thing we do every Sunday is obey the command where Christ says to his leaders, give them something to eat, which means you've been healed. The girl was 12. Let's stand to our feet this morning. The girl was 12 when she got sick. And the woman had an issue of blood for 12 years. And what Jarius, I would like to think, this is my opinion, you could come up with something imaginative yourself. These things aren't answered for us in the text because we're supposed to imagine, imagine, imagine. It's ironic, but we're probably supposed to read the Bible like a 12-year-old. And just imagine, imagine, imagine all these possibilities. The girl is 12. The woman with the issue of blood has been suffering for 12 years. And maybe in this moment, Jarius realizes my daughter's life and this woman's life are infinitely linked up in ways I never even could have imagined. I wonder if her healing will become my daughter's healing and my daughter's healing will become her healing because in Christ, every single one of us are connected in ways that are so deeply meaningful. For some of you, Jesus wants to heal that 12-year-old in you, that part of you that used to just go to him all honest, all messy, and you've stopped. Some of us, like Jarius, we've just been too prim, too proper, too right, too righteous, and now we can't crawl to him anymore. Some of us have been crawling the whole time and never knew that we could come to him like, like Jarius, like people of honor and royalty. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. Before we come to the table, we're just going to worship one more time. And I'm just asking any of you, let's pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, I pray for anybody in this room who simply needs a refreshing moment in your presence to be able to be honest again, to be able to tell the truth again to you, to not have to put on airs. I pray for those who are afraid to crawl, who used to come to you that way and now they can't 
approach you with that kind of passion and that kind of romance that it takes to just by any means necessary get at your feet. I pray for those who the world has forced to crawl forever. No matter how hard they work, no matter how good they do, they're always going to be crawling because the crowd around them keeps them pressed down. I pray that they would know that you're one more crawl away. That your train fills the temple. Your garments are every place where we are. And that you cause people who crawl to stand and the crowd sits down and they will walk to you like royalty. I pray whichever person anyone in this room is, that as the worship team ministers one more time, that we, if we need to learn to crawl, that we would have that spirit come in us. And if we need to get up and know that we are valuable, we do have worth, we do have agency, you do call us by name, you are saying you're my son and daughter, that we would just defy the emotions that are telling us we're not good enough and stand up in your presence. If you need one more time to, to come to the altar and to pray and to work through that, you can. We got deacons and elders who will pray with you. But just whatever you need to do, don't leave here because we heard a sermon and sang some songs. Jesus wants you to know if you've been crawling, he's going to ask you to stand. And if you're too afraid to crawl, he's going to give you that passion that you lost a long time ago. But press into his presence a little bit more. And if you need to be at the altar and just spend a little more time with him, what God wants for you this week is for you to be so changed today that your honesty breaks his life open on the world around you. Would you worship with us this morning? Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.